have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets. Where's the gold? This is the Gold Newsletter Podcast. Fergus Hodgson, your host. Thank you for tuning in. If you want more economics, financial independence, precious metals and mining, please do hit that subscribe button. Also go to goldnewsletter.com if you'd like to get our newsletters. We have a repeat guest. It's been a few years, though. Uh, a, man, a fellow man from down under, Peter Hartley. He is a professor of economics at Rice University. He's also a scholar of energy economics at the Baker Institute with the Center for Energy Studies. He's a PhD from the University of Chicago and is widely published. It's my honor to have you on, Professor. And I'm, I'm glad I got to meet you while I was a student at Rice a few years ago. The, the Baker Institute is one of the very top or preeminent institutions for energy research on the planet. So if you're also looking at graduate studies in the field, he's the man to go to. Now, Peter, welcome to the show. And please tell us, was there a crisis in 2022 with regard to energy, and is it has it subsided? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you very much for inviting me on the program and being interested in my views, and also say that I'm very pleased to be speaking to a fellow down underer. <laughs> <laughs> so your question is, was there a crisis in 2022? Yeah, I just asked that because I fear that a lot of the actual trends get lost in the noise of media sensationalism? So uh, we did have somewhat of a crisis, uh, I'd say you would call it um, toward the end here of 2022, beginning of 23 right now. Just this month, I guess, um, things look a bit better than people feared. They were going to look, uh, particularly in Europe, obviously. The, the problem with the Russian cutoff of Russian natural gas supplies to Europe is the a really big crisis aspect that people were worried about because Europe is very dependent on on imports of natural gas from Russia. And uh, with the invasion of Ukraine, uh, you know, and the cutting off of that supply uh, had a very big impact, uh, of course, on European uh, energy markets and not just the natural gas market, which is directly affected, but the electricity markets in Europe because they are very dependent on natural gas. So... Um, uh, and people are worried that with a cold winter in Europe, uh, you know, starting, of course, um, this end of 22, now going into 23, that there was going to be a huge increase in demand for natural gas for internal space heating, as there usually is in the winter, you know, to be combined with the industrial demand for natural gas for industrial purposes, very big in Germany, for example, because of the chemical industry. Uh, to be combined then with the uh, demand for natural gas for electricity production, which is very big in Europe. Uh, fortunately, uh, we've had some warmer weather in recent weeks in Europe. And so uh, it has not been as dire and uh, really bad as it could have been. But the winter is not over, of course. And some long-term, longer-term forecasts or intermediate-term forecasts, I suppose you'd put it, are suggesting that uh, we're going to go back into colder weather in Europe and in North America, toward the end of January, beginning of February, and possibly into March, the beginning of April, depending on how much you want to put your faith in a longer-term forecast of weather. Uh, but if that happens, then yes, it could be quite 
could indeed be quite uh, dire in terms of um, uh, natural gas supply, very tight in Europe. And then people are saying that um, uh, it may be even next winter, even worse, if you know, possibly. So the winter, you know, is of course the big problem because you've got all these uses for natural gas. But um, the sense in which this is not just due to Russia and Ukraine, a lot of people say, oh, it's just Ukraine. Well, energy prices in Europe were rising before Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, it's been a longer term kind of trend here of, of increasing, particularly electricity prices. And um, so there's another more fundamental kind of question issues going on there. So this the consequences of the war are overlaid onto a pre-existing situation. They made the challenges more visible. So what are the fundamental reasons for rising energy prices, particularly natural gas? Well, first, I'd say particularly electricity, let's say. It was prior to, prior to the um, invasion, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then the cutting off of gas supplies from Russia to Europe. It was really the crisis, if you like, or, or the brewing problems were really seen in the electricity markets more than natural gas markets as such. Okay. And, uh, and so you had increasing prices of electricity in Europe. Uh, even without natural gas going up. And why was that? And the reason for that is basically because of their climate obsession, I would call it in Europe, the climate policies. And uh, you can, I've, you can, one can do research, you can get um, uh, data from different European countries and you can discover that if you um, look at retail prices of electricity, the more Wind, the bigger the percentage of wind power in the country and the bigger the percentage of, of solar power in the country, the higher retail prices of electricity. And the bigger the percentage of um, nuclear power and uh, large-scale hydropower, the lower the prices of electricity. And at that stage, early on, it was also true probably that, um, well, natural gas, uh, not some more coal, not so much, but you really did notice statistically significant uh, lower price of electricity, you know, statistically significantly lower if they had more nuclear, more large-scale hydro. So examples there would be, you know, like France has a lot of nuclear, so nuclear power tended to have lower electricity prices. Scandinavia has a lot of hydroelectricity because a lot of dams, a lot of rivers they can dam, so like New Zealand, <laughs> South Island, New Zealand, right? So uh, they tended to have lower prices, but then. The countries with the highest prices all had a lot of wind and a bigger percentage of wind and solar. And so uh, this is what you see in Europe. You look across countries. Of course, the consequences of different mixes of generation are somewhat attenuated by trade in electricity. So if your electricity prices tend to be higher, you'll tend to import electricity. If they're lower, you tend to export, and that'll tend to... Uh, arbitrage the differences. It'll buffer the prices. Buffer, yeah. buffer the price differences. But still, the differences are evident and statistically significant. They were. And the reason is, is that, of course, the electricity systems historically were national-based. So the ability to trade is still somewhat restricted between countries. So you don't get complete arbitrage, right? So this still shows up. And so it's an interesting thing because people say, well, the wind is free and the sunshine's free. So how could it be? that countries that had more wind and more solar had a higher 
retail price of electricity. And before I, I sort of address that, if you want me to address that, I'll say something else, which is I've talked about Europe, but it's not just Europe. You find that um, around the world, as countries have added more new, uh, wind and solar power, that the retail price of electricity has gone up. This happened in Australia, for example. So I was involved early on in my career with the privatization and reform of the electricity industry in Australia. And actually, I also looked at New Zealand for that matter. I spoke to people that, uh, you know, on electricity issues, Electric Commission in New Zealand and ECNZ and so forth. But um, uh, everywhere you look around the world, as wind and solar power added, the cost retail price of electricity actually goes up. So uh, initially, people would be a little puzzled at that because, uh, as I mentioned, the wind itself is basically free and the sunshine is free, but of course, it's not free to harvest it. You have to have wind turbines to harvest the wind and you've got to have solar panels to harvest the sunshine, and they are not free. <laughs> is that relationship you mentioned, do we have data state by state in the United States? Yes, and um, you can also see a similar thing here that... Um, and and in fact, we also have seen like people say, well, the biggest wind state is Texas, but um, retail prices in Texas, if you look over certain periods when a lot of the wind was adding, they actually went down. But at the same time, natural gas prices are going down. So an important part of the story and why getting back to our initial discussion on the invasion of Ukraine and, and natural gas and all that, important part of this whole story is, in fact, the interaction between gas and renewables. So we can come back to that. So the Texas story, part of the point here was when the price, retail price of electricity were falling, even though wind was being added, at that time, natural gas prices were falling. Because of the shale revolution in the United States, the big increased production of gas, we had falling natural gas prices. So the uh, increase in electricity prices as a result of adding wind in Texas was masked by the simultaneous fall in natural gas prices. And, but one can argue that the Texas case is sort of an exception that proves the rule because you can argue that the electricity price fall here was less than it should have been given the fall in gas prices. So if we hadn't been adding wind, retail price of electricity probably would have fallen more in Texas. So uh, even though the price went down at that time, um, it didn't go down as much as it should given the fall in gas prices. And of course, Europe didn't have that advantage. They didn't have a fall in gas prices like we did. They didn't have the shale revolution. They didn't have the big increase in production. Well, anyway, getting back to the question, why would it be if, if the wind and solar, if the wind's free and the sunshine's free, why does it raise the prices? And of course, the reason is, is that the price has to cover the full cost of the supply of electricity. And the problem with uh, wind and solar is they're intermittent and you have to have backup and some way of, of compensating for when the wind's not blowing and when the sun's not shining. So you need a whole lot of extra generating capacity on the system. And a lot of that generating capacity uh, is not used very efficiently because it's not used when the wind is blowing and when the sun is shining. It has to be ramped up and down quite often very quickly to compensate for fluctuations, very rapid fluctuations in the supply of electricity from wind and solar, and that's very costly. And, and so you've got, and, and the general, what's called the capacity, the amount 
that you get to use that capital stock is reduced because you're turning it off whenever the wind is blowing and so on. So having to have this all entire all extra backup system makes it very expensive. And the wind and the solar, so just looking at the cost of the wind and the solar generation by itself in isolation is very misleading. And in fact, the evidence, the empirical evidence I cited is that these extra costs are so much higher. And of course, <clears throat> that's also why around the world, wind and solar still need a lot of subsidies. If it was so free, why would you have to subsidize it or mandate it? And you have to subsidize it or mandate it because it's not as free as everyone says. It actually is very costly. So your, your concern or observation is just that even if wind and solar are closely associated with rising electricity prices, they're just more popular or they have a better brand maybe than hydro and nuclear. Yes. The electricity system is actually a very complicated system. It's probably the most complicated, one of the most complicated things people have invented, electricity network. You have to have supply equal to demand exactly at all times or the system falls over. And, and so uh, it's a quite a complicated and you know, engineering challenge. And it's a very sophisticated thing that we have developed. And having people decide what you're going to attach to that system based on a popularity contest reflected by voting at elections is a crazy way to try to manage such a sophisticated and complicated system. The Gold Newsletter is proudly sponsored by Inventa Capital Corporation, a venture capital advisory firm dedicated to the acquisition and development of assets in the natural resource sector. Today, Inventa is one of the premier mining groups with a first-rate portfolio of companies and a world-class team. This is the Inventor Capital Mining Update, and I'm so pleased to have Sheree Leiden back with us. She leads Gold Bull Resources, that is GBRC on the Toronto Venture Exchange, and GBRCF over the counter. They have a market cap of about around five to six million US or seven, eight million Canadian. And she released a detailed review of 2022, including discussion of what's coming forward. So, Sheree, welcome to the show. And do you want to? Maybe hit the highlights of the of that review. So it's a difficult it is a difficult market, and you said you actually had to, you you you've made many let's say responses to that difficult market in terms of your staffing, in terms of your trajectory. How have you responded to a more challenging environment? Well, in 2022, we had an ambition to grow our resource via exploration drilling success, and essentially, as we were announcing positive drill intersections, positive gold hits. The share price just kept going down, down, down. So, you know, we kind of listened to that feedback that the market was giving us and we decided to stop adding those ounces via exploration and instead uh, looking, uh, looked at a scoping study or a PEA, as they call it in Canada, to look at the economics of the half a million ounces of gold that we do have in the top 100 metres at Sandman. So instead of focusing on adding ounces, we focused on extracting value and looking at the economics of a small scale startup operation uh, with view that that could self-fund the additional resource growth uh, once in operation. And let me just clarify for listeners, Sheree's uh, main project is the Sandman project in Nevada. From memory, you live near the near the border with California. You're, you're, you're based in Nevada. 
I am. Yes, I am. And so, so is our team. We're all very much hands-on on the ground. Right. So the Sandman project you said, right now you've got the preliminary economic assessment and is the feasibility study starting now for a, a small-scale mine? Yes, we've started um, components of the feasibility study, the long lead items of the feasibility study, and um, and they can that they include aspects such as metallurgical test work. Then um, one of the next steps, as soon as some snow melts, would be the hydrogeological monitoring, and their their surveys uh, and components of the feasibility study that can take about a year to complete. So we want to finish, or we want to start them now. Um, some have already commenced, so that that doesn't hold us up when it comes time to to mine permitting down the track. Right. And are you at liberty to share any of this, let's say, the M&A activity that's going on with the organisation, any of the expansion opportunities? Uh, yeah, we, we've made no secret that we're open to M&A. And uh, you know, if, if there's a transaction, a merger or a takeover where one plus one equals three for our shareholders, we'll certainly consider that. Uh, my team and I have been very busy over the holiday period um, with a couple of uh, M&A opportunities. And uh, we're still very much in advanced discussions with two companies regarding potential M&A uh, activity in, in 2023. So certainly um, see some benefits to that, especially in this market where exploration uh, dollars aren't really getting a lot of value. We think that uh, there's an opportunity to add ounces via M&A uh, in a less dilutive manner to actually exploring them and drilling for them. And do those particular companies have to remain off, off the record? Uh, yeah, I can't mention them by name because we're bound by CAs with those companies. But I can say they're both North American focused companies, both precious metal companies. Well, let's let's focus in on this this prospect of this small scale mine. And I'll just mention too, uh, Goldbull also has the Big Balls project, which is somewhat dormant right now. Sandman is the is the major focus. Let's focus on this the PEA and this small scale mine to come and. What's your approach to getting to the 30-odd million that you would like to conduct this small-scale mine? And we've got some very supportive major shareholders, and um, there's also a lot of debt on offer in the USA, um, largely by the government, in fact. So uh, there's, there's funding out there, I believe, for small-scale operations. There's just not a lot of companies that are fortunate to have a small-scale startup opportunity. So we've got a bit more work to do um, to advance it to a feasibility study, but with an MPV of 77 million US and I think our current market cap is about 5 million US is a big valuation disconnect and I largely think that's due to the, the pretty soft gold sentiment uh, which is, is surprising now that gold's you know around 1900 it's a decent gold price and uh, I think that 2023 is going to bode pretty well for gold so uh, an investment in gold ball is very much um, a punt on the gold price in my opinion we've got a robust project we've got the team uh, we've got the board that has a track record of developing mines and um, you know, generating shareholder wealth and, and value creation. So for me, um, the gold sector and the gold market is more so what's driving our depressed value at the moment. Yeah, and I'll just make another highlight from the PEA. You mentioned the 77 million MPV versus the market cap of around 5 million, which is obviously a huge contrast. And then the all-in cost of production would be under 1200 per ounce of gold and of course if we're around 1900 you can see that the potential is basically a 100% markup on that and that's just the start people should know that the salmon project this is not the end of the exploration basically that this is just the, the upper level do you want to clarify the distinction there 
Yes, spot on. And in fact, that 77 million MPV is only based on half our ounces. That's only based on 250,000 ounces of our 500,000 ounces at the moment. And yeah, as, as you mentioned, most of our resources are open in every direction. So we've got little doubt that that Sandman area is going to be over a million ounces, but that's going to cost a couple of million dollars. And I think the number is about $5 million internally to get that to that number. So right now we're in the, the market where that's really diluted for our shareholders, you know, when that's our current market cap. So we have to look at other options with respect to how it advances this project given the market conditions. Right. We've been speaking with Cherie Leiden of Gold Bull Resources. It is goldbull.ca. And on the, the TSXV, GBRC is the ticker. And on the over-the-counter, GBRCF for Americans. So Cherie, thanks for your time. And I look forward to another year of working with you and learning about your project. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I read one of your articles touching on this point, and I just thought, but seemingly everywhere, energy is a public utility. So isn't it always in somewhat political hands? Well, it by varying degrees, okay? So that's another kind of issue we can talk about entirely, <laughs> I guess. But the basic issue is this, that uh, there is an essential monopoly element in the electricity supply system, uh, which is that, as I just mentioned, the system as a whole has to be managed to maintain supply equals demand. So that's like it's a monopoly management agency, if you like. Plus, it's very, very expensive to duplicate the wires if that's what you wanted to do. There's, there's a natural, almost like a natural monopoly. Element. But therefore, it's a natural, yeah. that's what I'm arguing. This is why it's a natural monopoly. It's the nat But the natural monopoly element is in the wires, the transmission system, if you like, and in the uh, management of the system to maintain its operation. So you just can't have anyone willy-nilly adding power into the system or taking power out by themselves and still hope to have the system operating. There's got to be some centralised management there. So these are the natural monopoly elements. And what economists discovered is that so it used to be that um, basically the system was centrally organized as a monopoly, either as a government-owned monopoly, like in most of Europe and Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and so forth. But in the United States, because the electricity system developed here by private companies initially, you had private utilities, but they were regulated monopolies. So you had public utility commissions, public utility commissions that set the rates and set regulated rates of return. And, and these monopolies had monopoly franchises. And they designed and, and operated the transmission network within their uh, domain of operation. And they could buy and sell power to each other. And so a market kind of developed in, in America for sale of power, but it was between these regulated monopolies. Well, economists figured out in the early 80s that what you could do is, is um, with information technology, you could separate out the monopoly element of the electricity supply system from the uh, non-monopoly elements. So you could run generation as a competitive industry with competitive supply and people could bid in and then we would have a still have the system operator who would take those bids and decide how you maintain system balance like I talked about and so on. And the electricity network would still be a regulated monopoly in a sense with a regulated rate of return and regulated uh, and the whole process for designing new transmission networks and so forth would still be essentially government managed and all that. 
but you could but you could run the system as a competitive system. And when this was first done, for example, I told you I was involved in in that process in Australia in the beginning in the eighties, nineteen eighties. We found, and people around the world found, that when you introduce competition in supply, the market, that competition in the market forced cost reductions and efficiencies and improved operations and so on, relative even to a regulated monopoly or a monopoly system. So there were efficiency gains and electricity prices fell as a result of those deregulations. Uh, and we had that in Australia, for example, for several decades after the deregulations. And um, the reforms in Australia actually were, were regarded by the World Bank as some of the most successful that were now implemented. But unfortunately, um, the politicians couldn't keep their fingers out of the pie. And so they began to intervene on the basis of this time of environmental reasons. And so they said that, the, you know, we've got this uh, cold climate change thing and all that sort of thing. And so another thing we can talk about, actually, <laughs> but the motivation for that. But but in any case, the idea was that that uh, wind and solar became privileged generating sources of, of generation, and so uh, people discovered well if we can we can mandate them to be once we've got independent supplies and so on, we can allow wind farms to join the system and solar farms and so forth, and they can bid in like anyone else and so forth, and we can even mandate that and subsidise that. Well, the problem was. It looked like that was cheap, like I said, but actually it added to the costs. And and nowhere have we been able to avoid the subsidies. The, just the, just the, polit- the political attraction is just too magnetic, too powerful. Well, people, people, people were told that this was very good environmentally. And also there's sort of a romanticism, I think, connected with wind and sunshine. You know, we're using natural sources as pollution-free. It's, it's there for free. People don't recognise you've got to spend a lot of capital to harness it, even though the energy source is quote free. And their capital depreciates too, so it's not like it's just it's just a one-off. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But then the other big thing is is that you've got to back it up. And another thing is that you don't have control over when it generates. So here's the other problem: you put in a lot of wind, it's all supplying at the same time when it's supplying. So it's not supplying at the same time when it's not supplying. So that's why you need the backup. But when the wind is blowing, all of these wind farms are all generating at the same time, which drives the wholesale town price down at that time. And so the uh, as a competitive enterprise, the wind farms are all selling electricity when the wholesale price is lower. <laughs> and the more of them you add, the worse it is, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you, but you've got all this expense of supporting the rest of the system at all the times when the wind's not blowing and so on, and that's adding to all the costs. And so all of these these politically motivated interventions end up sort of have raised costs. And when we get back to where I started from the empirical evidence, right, that that actually adding this stuff ends up adding costs, and and continually needs to be subsidised and mandated. Is there going to be a broader recognition of this problem? And can we expect in twenty twenty three maybe an adjustment? I mean, I've, I've read many different sources on this that maybe there will be some sort of a renaissance in nuclear yeah. power. Right. Well, I think that there, there are two uh, possible sources of, of, of pressure. So one is, is that, okay, so all this wind and solar needed a lot of backup. So what provided the backup? That was natural gas. So that's the hidden dirty secret, so to speak, is that all of this wind and solar can only be added because you've got natural gas that you'd use as the backup. And why natural gas is because you can turn it on and off very quickly. 
in particular gas turbines are basically like a jet engine on a plane. So, you know, you can start them up like you can start up a jet engine on a plane. It's a, it's a, jet, a jet, right? But instead of uh, turning fan blades, it, it turns a, a generator. So you generate electricity, right? Anyway, um, so you had all this natural gas backup. So with the reduction in natural gas supply from Russia, getting back to where we started and the increase in natural gas prices, that's raising electricity prices as well a lot because now all of the natural, all of the backup for the renewables is going up in cost. And so that's causing people to wake up to the cost of backing up the system. So that's one pressure. Here's another pressure. What people don't realize is that to produce the wind turbines and the solar panels, you need an awful lot of mined material inputs. In fact, solar panels and wind turbines lead, use a lot of the very exotic mineral inputs. It's, so it's not just solar panels that require very you know ela elaborate mineral ingredients. It it's also the, wind, the, the wind turbines as well. Yep, because of the magnets that are in the, the generators and all sorts of various things, the electronics and so on and so forth. So as, the, as we try to put in more and more of these um, facilities, the demand for the minerals is going up and the price of them is rising. And there's just not enough. The whole idea of, of running the world on wind and solar power, well, first of all, it can't be done by itself. You need this backup. So what's the dream? The dream is that we're going to back it up with batteries. But guess what? Batteries need a whole bunch of these very sophisticated mineral inputs as well. And if you tried to, to, to replace the existing energy system, fossil fuels still supply about 83% of the world's primary energy. It's an enormous job to replace all of that energy system with an alternative, let alone allow for the fact that we've got huge growth in energy demand coming from developing countries. And so the demand for these minerals. It's just going to go through. The, it's probably not enough. These minerals around, again, price is going to go up, and so that's also going to put pressure on the system, which will force people to wake up, I think. And the third thing is getting back to your point on nuclear that there's a tremendous amount of research that's being done on alternative nuclear right now. A lot of private companies that are looking at new nuclear technologies, and we've barely scratched the surface in terms of looking at possible nuclear reactions. And the point about nuclear energy is that it's incredibly energy dense. The amount of energy, usable energy out of a kilogram of uranium oxide is about 10,000 times the amount, equivalent amount of energy out of a kilogram of diesel fuel. So nuclear power is just produces so much more energy than chemical reactions, which is what we're using for fossil fuels. And wind and solar are incredibly low energy density. That's why you need also a huge amount of land if you're going to produce your electricity with wind and solar because the amount of energy per square kilometre of land is very low and uh, we don't have enough land to do energy that way. Whereas with nuclear, it's so energy dense that you can produce all the energy you want and we will need as eight or nine billion people move to a modern lifestyle who all want to live like the rest of us. And of course, they have every right to do so. Tremendous amounts of energy will be needed. And I think the only game in town really at the end of the day is going to be nuclear of some sort. Well, yeah, well, just in terms of the density or availability, I, I always had this memory from my family farm in New Zealand where my parents put up a windmill and not just some old fashioned one with modern materials. And it struggled to power even the trough for the water for the cows. 
so weak and it was just a, a big reality check of what these things could do yeah yeah, yeah. it's very low energy no very low density energy density energy source so and um you know there's some very promising new nuclear technologies that overcome uh you know people have had concerns about safety issues and waste issues and these things well we're invest and the capital intensity of nuclear has been a concern for utilities uh you have to be very up until now very big plants that cost a lot of money and so forth but all of these problems are being tackled by private firms uh, actually now looking at uh, this Quebec for example in Canada has a moratorium on all uranium extraction are we going to see these things turn around I do think, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know. I guess I'm an economist. So. <laughs> yeah, you can't predict the future, I know. I, but, no, yeah. no, that's right. No, but what I'm going to say is, though, as an economist, I think that reality has a way of asserting itself in the long run, uh, that, you know, um, costs matter and relative efficiencies matter. And so the politicians can do various things. We can have lots of distortions. We can get off and go down rabbit holes and so on for a certain amount of time. And certainly the richer the country, the more mistakes you can make. And for the long, you can make the mistakes for longer. But but I think at the end of the day, uh, reality has a way of, of uh, asserting itself. And I think that that will happen. The only question is, how long does it take to happen? And some of those things are things that you can't predict. I mean, how successful is the research going to be? You know, when when are some of these alternatives really going to take off? Uh, uh, it's difficult to get financing for innovative new energy technologies um, uh, because it's so hard to predict when they're going to be successful. And these can be very long time horizon projects and so on. But uh, I still think that physical reality and economic reality will will uh, assert themselves in the long term. I'm going to quote uh, an article here from the Baker Institute, this one by Michelle Michaud, and it's called Clean Energy Dogmas and, Real in- and Energy Real Politic. And she says that the values of fossil fuels producers shares, this came out in December 2022, so just last month, are considerably more attractive than those of clean energy tech companies. Clean energy tech has underperformed the broader market indices, even with inflation and recession fears. Do you want to comment briefly? I know we're, we're running out of time, but on why clean energy tech has underperformed? Well, relative to the to the fossil fuels, because the big run-up in natural gas prices and oil prices uh, in 2022 really helped the fossil fuel companies. And the other reason that, um, that they have performed very well is uh, sort of in terms of profitability is that we had this period of reduced investment, like here in the United States in the shale, oil and shale gas, after people, a lot of investors felt that... The, a, a big pullback, yeah. Yeah, that the energy companies had over-invested in exploration and so forth, there was a big pullback. That's affected supply from, from, from the US and so forth, supply of energy and natural gas. So, I mean, there are a lot of factors as to why energy and natural gas did very well in 2022. Vis-a-vis renewables, uh, two big things I already talked about. One of them is the rising price of the raw material inputs are very important and have a, had a significant negative impact. But the other one is the one I mentioned that is a fundamental problem with a lot of these, tech, particularly the, the wind and solar generation technologies, that they're dumping on their market all the time, like I said. Yeah, they, they're their own worst enemy. Yeah, because you can't control exactly when they're generating. They're all generating at the same time. And so, uh, you know, the more of you put on the system, the lower the price tends to be at the time. 
when they generate. And in your own article, this is this is we'll, we'll link to all these in the show notes. The cost of displacing fossil fuels. Some evidence from Texas. You say fossil fuels inevitably will be displaced as depletion raises their costs and makes them uncompetitive. Currently, wind generational nuclear power supplemented by bulk electricity storage are the most feasible alternatives. Now, is you I assume you are careful in including wind rather than solar in that mix. Right. Well, it was just at the time I wrote that article, Texas had a lot of wind, uh, utility scale wind, and had been developing a lot of wind power. So there's a lot of data I could rely on about how that worked and and how it generated and how much it cost. And so my article's based on, on data. At that time, Texas had very little solar capacities. In the last few years, the fastest new capacity added in Texas has been solar. So if you were to rewrite that article right now, you could say more right about solar. The the point I the interesting thing I, I discovered in that article. So first of all, let's talk about the, the fossil fuel depletion and the rising. But what am I getting at? I'm getting at the point there at the world scale, like I just mentioned. We got eight, nine billion people. They all want to live a modern lifestyle. I'm talking decades in the future. Tremendous increase in the demand for energy. You can't do anything. You can't do any work. You have no GNP if you had no energy. In terms of physics, energy is the ability of a force to do work. All work requires energy. So energy is essential to economic production. You have increased GNP, economic growth around the world, billions of people having high levels of economic growth, tremendous increase in the demand for energy. As you mine the fossil fuels, the price of the cost of mining them goes up, the quality of the reserves goes down and so forth. That's what I was talking about. But the interesting thing I discovered in that article is the following. If you were to say, okay, at some point we're going to replace fossil fuels. Let's suppose we want to do that. It's a thought experiment. You're going to do it with wind. You've got to have a backup. Let's do wind and storage, or you can do solar and storage. Or you could do, also, you could use natural gas as the backup. The interesting thing is this. In the very short term, when you're using natural gas as the backup, wind plus gas is cheaper than nuclear plus gas. Why? Because gas is so cheap in Texas. In the long run, though, storage is very, very expensive. And wind system needs twice as much storage as a natural as a nuclear system. So when you do try to do wind plus storage, it ends up being much more, more expensive than nuclear plus storage because the storage is so expensive. That was sort of the interesting thing. I see. And so now there will be a transition, but you're just saying that it's, it's I guess, we're still working on how to make solar and wind somehow replace fossil fuels and it seems likely that there will be a renaissance in nuclear power, but with many new technologies. Because I don't think solar and wind can replace fossil fuels. I'm sorry. Can't be done. Uh, the only thing that can replace it is nuclear, I think. That's the only technology we know of that has the... In fact, the only two examples we have of substantial displacement of fossil fuel are the French and Swedish nuclear programs. Okay, folks. Go to bakerinstitute.org to learn more about Peter Hartley's work and many of his great uh, colleague scholars. It's a wonderful institution, and I was privileged to get to, you know, go to some of the events there when I was a student at Rice University. So otherwise, Peter, thanks for your time, and I look forward to following more of your work. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me again. 